The scripture for today's sermon comes from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The word of God speaks to us. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is God's word to us. Thanks, Tally. Good morning. It's good to be with y'all. If I haven't got a chance to meet you yet, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline Edmond, and uh, I'm really happy to be, as JJ reminded us so well, um, not just celebrating the resurrection last week, um, but continuing to celebrate the reality that, that Jesus is just as much alive today as he was last week on Easter Sunday. So we gather to celebrate that, look to his word. So I want to pray for you, you pray for me, and then we will dive into this text and others. Um, and so let's pray for one another, with one another. Heavenly Father, our song um, is my prayer we need, the, we need the Father heart of God. We need to see Jesus. We need the beauty and the wonder and the glory of the Son. And we need the presence of the Holy Spirit. So we come before you triune God and we pray that the beauty of the gospel would strike our hearts once again this morning as we looked as to what it means to be the church and how we're called to be empowered. And I pray, as, as we always pray, that they, in a real way, I would get out of the way and point to you, Jesus, and serve my friends in being able to see the wonder, Jesus, of who you are and what you've done and what that means for each and every one of us. And we pray that, Jesus, in your name, God's people said, amen. This morning, I was thinking about a conversation that Anna, my wife, and I had um, Oh, a couple weeks ago, I think, and I don't know if you remember this, but I was lamenting about my smartphone. And um, some of you might like be super pro smartphone. Some of you might hate it. If you're like me, I s suppose that the majority of you have a, a complex relationship with that device. And uh, and I was just like lamenting to Anna, and it was just one of those moments where I probably went to like look at the weather, and then like 20 minutes later, I hadn't checked the weather. I was just on ESPN. I was like, it, you know, you trapped me again. And, uh, and so I was, I was sharing this like brand new cutting edge technology, which isn't new technology at all. It's just regressive. And it's like these new phones are out, and all they do is text and call. <laughs> it's like what phones did 20 years ago. Uh, and I was sharing that I wanted one of these new slash old phones. And, uh, and we both had the same thought. And as I was thinking it, Anna said it, and um, we both expressed that that would not work out for me because I need maps on my phone. I need maps to know like how long it's going to take me to get somewhere because I don't know that without maps anymore. And I need maps 
to, to, to be honest, to get anywhere. I am just leaning heavy on the crutch that it is maps. If I was, by the providence of God, I was born in this time because I would be dead if I lived 200 years earlier. I would have wandered off a cliff. My direction is not good. I will admit that. I'm married to a woman who is like a personification of Google Maps. She can get around anywhere and God put us together for my life. But I bring that up because it is really helpful to have that tool for me to be able to stop when I'm on a journey and just get bearings. Like, hey, where am I? Where am I going? To gauge where I'm at and have that, that you are here moment to see where I've been, but also to make sure I'm on the right track and get direction as to where I'm headed. And we all need that. And we shouldn't be perpetually looking at where we are and where we're going. I remember about 20 years ago, my grandfather, my mom's dad, bought my grandmother, my mom's mom, uh, a GPS and put it in her car as a gift. And then he rode with her one time and then he took that GPS away because she would just look at the GPS screen and not look at the road, you know? And, uh, and you do that too, so don't judge my grandma. Um, <laughs> And so there's a way that we can do that in our own life, though. And even as, as a church, we can do it in the life of just perpetually looking at where are we going, where are we headed, where are we, where are we, and, and maybe be too consumed with our place on the journey instead of actually taking the journey. And yet it's good and it's right and it's fitting to regularly kind of take stock as to where we are on our journey on mission, stop and look at where we're headed, get our bearings. And it just seems like really good to do that the Sunday after Easter. It seems like a natural place to, to celebrate, hey, where God has brought us as a congregation, but to pause and to practically and importantly look at a few things that are ahead on our journey as a church. Things like this summer, um, we're going to have membership renewal if you're a covenant member of this church. And that is something that we do every summer that's, that's really important because we don't want to be a church that has church membership where that church membership is simply a list of names on a database. That's really unhelpful. We want to be a real, robust, genuine membership where people know that they're a part of the church and pastors and leaders know the people who are a part of that church and are shepherding them well and speaking to questions they have or ways that they can serve, that it's truly the family of God. And church membership is just one important way that we live that out. And membership renewal is one important way that we stay healthy as a church that's coming up this summer. That's on the journey ahead as we look ahead. Also, what I love about our church is that we, in a real way, this congregation specifically, was planted to proclaim the gospel to young people. And by young people, I mean children. And we love the city of Edmond and have planted this congregation in the city of Edmond to be a part of what many churches in the city are doing, which is gospel proclamation to kids. Jesus was pro-kid. He loved kids. We as a church want to love children in kind like Jesus did. And so that, that every Sunday happens in our kids' church, but in our summers as a church, as we take a stock as to where we are and we look ahead. We have two things coming up that we need to be prayerful about. The first is student camp where our teenagers are invited to go to wow camp, camp walk on water for our heartland camp. And they, in a, in a real way, if they're followers of Jesus are, are, uh, 
encouraged and strengthened in their faith, but many teenagers that are coming are far from God. They haven't put their faith in Jesus. And, and faithfully, year after year, we've seen, we've seen teens come to faith at our student camp. That's going to happen at the end of May, I think the 31st through the 4th of, of June. And then a few weeks after that, we're going to have our VBS here in this building. It's a beautiful time to, to plant truth of the gospel into young hearts for elementary students. And that is ahead as we take stock of where we are and where we're going. But what is also beautiful and practical and important is through the rest of the summer, starting next Sunday, all the way through, I think, late August, we're going to continue in and complete our study as we, as a Bible-honoring church, have been going verse by verse, line through not line through the verse, or through the letter, I should say, of 1 Corinthians. By my count, we've spent 26 Sundays studying 1 Corinthians, and we've got 17 more to go. And as we've mentioned before, 1 Corinthians, all theologians are going to break that letter from Paul to the church in Corinth into five sections. The first four verses are on division. And Paul addressing that that foundational problem of division in that church. The the second portion, which is verses 5 through 7, Paul speaks to the importance of sex and the life it plays into the follower of Christ and what that means for singleness and marriage. And then um, he also tacks on litigation in there, which, you know, makes perfect sense along with sex and marriage that you talk about lawsuits in the church. Um, but then he goes on in the third section to, to talk about the, the primary problem, not of just division, but how that plays out in idol worship in that church and calling that church to sacrificial love. And then a few weeks before Easter Sunday, we began to enter into that fourth section of this letter out of the five that really speaks to the importance of gathering as a church and what it looks like to gather on Resurrection Day, Sunday, to gather as a church and Pastor Kale spoke to communion the week before that. I spoke to the importance of gender in the life of the gathered church, what it means to be a man in Christ and a woman in Christ. And as we begin next week, we're going to enter into a long section of this letter that is going to talk about the importance of the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church and through the life of the church as the church gathers together for worship. After that, we're going to get into the final section where Paul speaks to the beauty and the significance of the resurrection. This summer is going to be like Easter Sunday for week and week and week after week after week. It's going to be beautiful as we look at the power and the beauty of the resurrection. But before that, we're going to work our way through 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14 to talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And when we think of the Holy Spirit and the church, that's often the first place we go in our minds and our hearts is to these chapters to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. But I thought it would be fitting today as we pause and just take stock as to where we are before we go to the gifts of the Spirit, which are important and we will spend time talking about. I just want to talk about the nature and the beauty of the relationship between God, the Spirit, and the church. And so to do that first, I want us to look at how Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit. How Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit. To look at our relationship as a church with the Holy Spirit, the first place we need to look is the life of Jesus Christ. When Jesus entered into the world, he did so as fully human. When the Son of God was born as Jesus, he did so as a full, real, complete human being. 
He didn't cease to be God in any way. The church fathers were fond of saying, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. And if you were to carefully read through just the, four, the first four chapters of Luke's gospel account, the life and ministry of Jesus, it'd be actually a, a helpful exercise for each of us to do this week is to go home and just read the first four chapters of the gospel of Luke. And anytime the Holy Spirit is mentioned, you can just underline that or highlight that. And what you will find is the central character of the gospel of Luke is not Jesus first, but it will be the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit first. A shocking amount of times the Holy Spirit is mentioned and you realize Luke is trying to get us to see that, that virtually the entire earthly ministry of Jesus, everything that he did, the compassion, the power, was a work of the Spirit in and through his life. You'd see that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. You see these amazing moments where Elizabeth, who's carrying John the Baptist, goes to visit her cousin Mary, who's carrying Jesus in her womb, and they have the last great prophet proclaiming the way of Jesus and the Savior himself in the womb. And when those babies in the womb get near to each other, you see miraculously the Holy Spirit fills in the womb John the Baptist. It's just what we're going to see throughout this study that when you draw close to Jesus, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit comes. And then later on in his ministry, John the Baptist says what? Proclaiming the way of Jesus and, and holding up Jesus and the promise of the Savior to come. He says, hey, Jesus is more powerful than myself. I baptize you just with water, but there's one who's going to come who's greater than I, and he's going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. And all this leads, if you read the Gospel of Luke and all the Gospels, this leads to this moment, this summit, this climax, this, this crescendo as we see the Holy Spirit's work in the Gospels where Jesus is baptized. And this is the significant turning point in his life and his ministry. So I just want you to ask yourself, those of us who are especially familiar with Scripture, hey, what kind of ministry did Jesus do before his baptism? What kind of sermons did he preach? What kind of healings did he perform? What, what demons did he cast out? And the answer is zero. We have no recorded history of the life of Jesus, him doing any kind of significant ministry before his baptism. But what happened at the baptism of Jesus? What happened in his life? Look at Matthew 3.16. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So when Jesus comes out of the water, the gospel of Matthew tells us, Matthew writes for us that the Holy Spirit comes and rests on Jesus. And it's from that moment on that we see Jesus kicking off his ministry empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life, the son of God himself. Scripture tells us in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And so when we see Jesus coming face to face with Satan himself and Satan tempting Jesus and Jesus responding with the word of God and conquering that temptation, we're seeing he's doing that empowered by the Spirit of God. 
And then what happens after that, we read it again later on in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Luke tells us, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, and then Jesus reads a portion from Isaiah 61, and what does he say about himself? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant, sat down. All eyes were on him in the synagogue. And he says this in verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing hearing. Every, every wondrous thing, every impactful thing, every significant thing that Jesus did, the miracles, the raising of the dead, the casting out of demons, the compassion where he moved towards others and, and to the outcast, he seeks and saves and chases them down and transforms their life by God's grace Luke's gospel tells us he didn't just do those things merely because he was the son of God. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus went about that ministry empowered by the Holy Spirit. And there's an easy way for us to have bad theology where we view Jesus Christ as kind of like a Clark Kent Superman figure, right? He looks normal, he looks like an average guy, but deep down, he's a powerful being from another planet who's just in disguise. He's not like us. He's not really human. But that's profoundly bad theology. Scripture teaches us that Jesus was fully God and fully man, and yet the, the Scriptures also teach us that his entire earthly life and ministry was lived out, his humanity, empowered by the Spirit of God. Sam Storms, he puts it this way. Speaking of Jesus, Pastor Storm says he voluntarily chose not to exercise the prerogatives and power of deity, opting instead to depend on the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus did that for us. That brings us to the second thing we need to see. Jesus lived a spirit-empowered life so that the church could lead a spirit-empowered life, a church empowered by the Holy Spirit. See, there's a fascinating correlation. When you look at Jesus' life and ministry, it, it, it shows us the model, a correlation between this, the church's spirit-empowered life of ministry. There's a fascinating correlation between the spirit-filled life of Jesus and the spirit-filled life of the church. At the very end of Luke's gospel, we see the resurrected Jesus. He's standing before his disciples. He's sending them. He's commissioning them to go out into the world with the good news of the gospel, proclaiming who he is and what he's done and calling people to follow him by faith. But before he sends them out, what does he do? He tells them to do nothing first but to wait. And what does he tell them to wait for? Who does he tell them to wait for? Luke 24 Picking up in verse 48, Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things. 
And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then we see again in Acts 1, as Tally read, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then we see in the beginning of the the book of Acts in chapter 2, this day of Pentecost. And when we think of the significant events of the New Testament, we think of the birth of Christ We think of the death of Christ. We think of the resurrection of Christ, which is all good. We need to celebrate Easter and Good Friday and Christmas. And yet, Pentecost is is vital and significant to the message of the gospel and the life of the church. Acts 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And verse 4, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So just like the baptism of Jesus where the Spirit comes and rests on Christ, we see there's a baptism with fire that Jesus had promised and the Spirit comes and rests upon these early followers of Jesus. And it's that moment from then on that the early church also moves forward in power and in ministry like no other place before, right? The disciples before this empowerment of the Holy Spirit, they were cowardly and confused and and saying the wrong things and doing the wrong things. But after this baptism of the Holy Spirit, this empowering spirit in their life, they dramatically changed. From this point forward, you see the apostles like Peter and John and other leaders in the church and just members of the church like, like Philip or Stephen. They're doing things just like Jesus did, empowered by the Spirit, just like Jesus was. They're healing the sick. They have compassion for the lost. They're casting out demons. They're proclaiming truth in power. And as significant as Easter is, the resurrection of Jesus is so significant, but it was not the only thing that empowered these disciples in boldness, authority, and fueled their ministry. They were empowered by the presence and work of the Holy Spirit in their life. And from this point onward, the church steps into this unique period of redemptive history that we now still live in, and it's the age of the Spirit. So what does this mean for us? Like we need to just honestly say, like, hey, if, if the Apostle Peter, who was just a dear and best friend to Christ in the flesh, if for him to, to live out his calling, he needed to be spirit-empowered to have the life and the courage and the ministry and the mission he was called to, we do too. And more than that, Jesus himself, he modeled for us what it means to live a spirit-empowered life. And if Christ chose to do that, He's showing us that we do too. And I think as I am grappling with this in my life, and you might be thinking, well, okay, look, I'm a believer in Christ, and doesn't Scripture tell me then that I have the Holy Spirit? Like, of course, yeah, Pentecost, that was important. But the truth is, like, I have been clothed with power from on high. Scripture tells me that since I'm in Christ, I have the Spirit in me, so I have all that I need. It's a one-and-done thing, is it not? Well, two things come to mind, one far more important than the other. 
And the first is something that Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's one of my favorite preachers of all time, he said to his congregation in London faced with that same question. Lloyd-Jones asked to his church, got it all? Well, if you have it all, I simply ask in the name of God, why are you as you are? He said it. I wouldn't say something like that to you guys. This is confrontational, right? But he went on to say, if you've got it all, why are you so unlike New Testament Christians? Got it all? Got it at your conversion? Well, where is it, I ask? And I, I sit under that question. But more importantly, look at what the Apostle Paul says. That's maybe what Dr. Jones would say if he was here with us. But listen to what Pastor Paul might say to us if he were with us this moment. He said this to a church that he planted in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. Ephesians 5, verse 18, familiar to many of us. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. He's writing to Christians. And he's saying, be filled with the Spirit. And that command, that charge, is, is a present imperative, right? It's not a one-time thing. He's saying this is a journey for the follower of Christ. That yes, you do have the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Scripture tells us he lives in you if you are in Christ. And we need to live in such a way that we seek to be empowered and filled by the Spirit. And when we think about that, we think of a liquid metaphor, right? Which actually is probably unhelpful because we think, okay, we were empty, we were lost, we were dead, but then we got saved and we've been filled up with the Spirit, and that's a, a one and done thing. But actually, the metaphor, the language of spirit in the Old Testament, Ruach, and in the New Testament, Numa, the word for spirit, it can be translated wind, breath, or spirit. So to think in liquid metaphor, which makes sense that we would do that, it's actually not the most helpful. We need to think in terms of breath or wind. Case in point, like when I come to that verse in Ephesians 5, what comes to my mind that I find helpful is Miles Davis. Meaning like you have a trumpet that's beautiful and made with purpose and design, and yet until the master picks it up and blows his breath, it's at that moment that you see really what's possible in that creation of that instrument. And that's a picture of the life of the Christian being filled with the Spirit. When our master picks us up in his breath, the Spirit of God works in and through us. We resound in beauty in our purpose. Or perhaps even a better image is that of a, a sailboat. Here's a picture of a, probably the most famous sailboat in history. It's called the Westward. So fast, won so many races. But if, if the sails are down, it's not going anywhere. Yet when the sails are up and the wind comes, what? It is empowered forward on its journey. Here's the point. Like Christians who already have the indwelling presence of the Spirit, we're called to continually pursue the ongoing filling of the Spirit and pray for his ongoing empowerment in our lives. And this plays out for our importance in necessary ways, in many different ways, in the mundane parts of life, for our maturity, for our ministry, for our mission. 
The mundane parts of life, meaning just the everyday moments of life. If we're seeking to be spirit-empowered Christians, we think about that like in, in terms of epic moments. But actually, we need to be spirit-empowered Christians for the everyday moments of our life. Going into that business meeting that's challenging every Monday morning, we ought to, to, to rely on the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Parenting our children in those moments where it seems heavy and confusing and we want to withdraw and escape because we're just worn out. Actually, those are the moments that we most need to be spirit-empowered and say, Spirit of God, I need you to, to empower me, to work in me and through me to do this everyday work of raising my child. Even in our, our friendships, they ought to be spirit-empowered friendships if we're in Christ. We're not doing them by our own strength and living them out in our own strength, but the spirit working in us and through us to be like Christ to one another. We need to be spirit-empowered people to grow in maturity. The Holy Spirit is, is called the Holy Spirit because he is set apart. He is sanctified. And yet he's also called the Holy Spirit because that's the work that he does in our life. He makes us holy. He makes us more like Christ. And so when we ought to have Galatians 5 come to mind, 5.22 through 23, when we think about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, where Paul writes, there's not a law against these things. Those things aren't something that we drum up in our own strength, but that is actually fruit in our life that the world desperately needs, but the Spirit works through us to produce so that we're no longer, as Paul writes here, a slave to our flesh, our base disordered desires, but we grow in maturity and we bear fruit for the blessing of others. We need to be spirit-empowered for the mundane parts of our life, for the maturity of our walk with Jesus. We need the spirit to empower us for the ministry that we're called to as the church. As we're going to see in the coming weeks, as we look at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, it tells us that the Holy Spirit empowers us with gifts to minister to one another as the body of Christ, that we're all different parts but unified together, and the Spirit works through us for the common good and the glory of God. And he uses this analogy, Paul, to describe one body with many members, and the Spirit fills us with love and concern and that type of unity for one another. So when somebody is hurting or sick. We have love just like a hand cares for a hurting shoulder and we seek to serve one another. And we see somebody desperate or depressed that we move towards them and love when one part of the body is hurting, all the body cares. When something's out of order, the, the part of the body that's gifted to bring order comes and brings leadership or organization. We need to be spirit-empowered to even function as a church, and we certainly need to be spirit-empowered to live out any kind of mission. We see over and over and over again in the book of Acts, there is a direct correlation between the spirit working in the life of the church and the courage to be bold and proclaim the good news of Jesus to a world that's watching. The Spirit always leads the church to reach out to the lost and the lonely and, and those far from God with truth and love. 
And as I speak to, to many of us and, and hang out in community groups or have individual conversations, there's just this excitement that we're sensing that God is not only doing stuff in the world and that there's a hope of renewal and revival and reawakening, but even in people's lives that we know that we've been praying for for a long time. And the reality is any type of renewal that we hope for is only going to come about by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. John Stott puts it this way in his book, The Message of Acts. Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without receiving the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As, the, as a body without breath, breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. So where do we go from here? Again, it's our song. We need the, the Father heart of God. We need the beauty of the Son. We need the presence of the Holy Spirit. So I would invite all of us as a congregation to, to look at our hearts in these coming weeks and, and keep our hearts open in expectation as we study the Spirit's work in the church and just simply pray a prayer like this continually. God, as we study the work of the Spirit in the life of the church, help me know what's true and help me as Jesus prayed, pray your kingdom come, your will be done as it relates to the work of the Spirit in my life and in my church's life. And we would remember the goodness of the Father. So we, we get sometimes some of us because of our background and hurts and, and ways that we've seen the, the relationship and gifts of the Spirit just, you know, botched by churches. We can, we can be apprehensive or, or even scared and I'm there in many ways. But let's look to the words of Jesus, remembering the goodness of our Father. Luke 11, verse 13. It requires some good background music. It's such a good verse. <laughs> Listen to what Jesus said. If you then who are evil, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? I think I'm a pretty good dad. And when my kids come to me and ask for a piece of bread, I don't give them a stone. When they come to me and they, they ask for a piece of fish, which I don't think they've ever done, but if they did, <laughs> I would not give them a snake. That's what Jesus says in this verse. And he's like, so you think you're a pretty good dad, but you're not. You're born a sinner. You're evil compared to the, the beauty and the perfection and the wonder and the strength of the Heavenly Father. And so imagine the ultimate good dad who never lets us down, who always knows what we need more than we know what we need. When we ask him for something, is he not going to give us good gifts? And Jesus is using that illustration, that truth, painting that picture of our Heavenly Father to say, hey, your Heavenly Father desires to give you the Holy Spirit. We can trust that our, our good Heavenly Father only wants to give us good gifts as his kids. And we remember the invitation of Jesus. Finally, look at what Jesus had to say in John chapter 7. Picking up in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart flows rivers of living water. That's that's epic. What does that mean? Out of his heart, if we believe in Jesus, if we come to Jesus, out of our heart flows living water, life-giving power. And John records, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Thank God that we live today in an age where Christ has been glorified. He's risen from the dead. Everything is different. And he was ecstatic, promising to his friends, hey, you think it's better that I'm here with you, but it's going to be better actually than having me here in the flesh. It's going to be better for for this world that I go because when I'm glorified, when I take my seat at the throne at the right hand of the Father, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, he's going to come. He's going to indwell in my believers and he's going to empower you to carry on my mission throughout all ages to the entire world. And so we can experience the empowering of the Holy Spirit, but we also need to pursue that through our habits as a church. Just like John the Baptist in that womb, he he moved close to Jesus and he experienced the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That's a picture for us, that we would more move towards Jesus expecting the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. As we read scripture, as we gather in community groups, as we pray for one another, as we worship on Sundays, as we in the moment in Christ come to the Lord's table, we do so expectantly trusting our Heavenly Father, moving close to the person of Christ and ready to receive the empowerment of the Spirit in our lives as a church. Let's do that with one another now and stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good Father who we can trust, who always gives us good gifts. And so in the everyday, mundane, ordinary of life, you care. In our maturity, in our growth, as we seek to be men and women who continually look more and more like Jesus, that's a work that you're doing in us. For our ministry to love people, to to serve one another as the body of Christ, We depend on you for that and to to be a people that hope at all to push back darkness. That's your work in and through us. And so for all of these things, we ask our good father to give us what we need. And that is God, the spirit at work in our lives, through our lives. That we would resound out in love, that we would be blown forward in mission, taking us where we need to go by the power of the spirit. So Holy Spirit, we repent for ways that we've had our hearts and eyes closed to your work in our lives. And we ask that you would help us have soft hearts to be led where you want to take us and to, to work in us and through us for the glory of Jesus and for our thriving, for our flourishing. We pray this, Jesus, in your name, God's people said.